it seems like creatives always get a bad rap. From childlike tantrums and ridiculous green room requests, strange superstitions, and even self-mutilation, it's clear that artists have plenty of strange habits. But they've also made a pretty big impact on the world. Hi, I'm Kate Rooney. And I'm Jess Scuffy. And you're listening to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services platform. In this podcast, we'll be uncovering the fascinating myths and shocking stories behind the artists we love, or in some cases, love to hate, as we try to determine, are creatives the worst? Welcome to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services platform. Woo! Woo! <laughs> My name is Kate Rooney, and I am with, via Zoom, the amazing Jess Guffey. Hello, Catherine. <laughs> Hello, Jessica. <laughs> we only only greet each other with formal names going forward. Uh, wait, what's your middle name? Kylan. Maybe we shouldn't... Oh, that's so pretty. Thanks. My parents made it up. It's allegedly Irish. I don't know. Yeah, it sounds like a name. Yeah, <laughs> you know. They're like, we just decided to mash some names together. <laughs> Kylan... <laughs> cute i just have a like the most basic middle name Anne. Anne. <laughs> i know Catherine it's Anne, Anne because of all the travel i've booked for our team oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> i know everyone's middle name <laughs> that's not weird at all no not weird at all it's just an encyclopedia of middle names <laughs> uh how are you doing today it's saturday so that's well, it's thing. sunday but yeah <laughs> oh, is it really <laughs> Okay, okay, to be fair, I've been on PTO, I'm technically on vacation, Mm -hmm. um, but I probably still would have gotten that wrong, even if I wasn't. This this pandy is just taking a toll, I don't know what day it is, where I am, or... I already forgot my middle name, so... Dumpster fire, all around, it's (sighs) fine. But you know what's not a dumpster fire? What's that? The person we're going to talk about today. Although you might Ooh. feel that way after <laughs> I tell you their story. <laughs> no. Now, usually I feel like I come up with some sort of riddle for you to figure out mm-hmm. who it is, and I got nothing for this. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I've already just talked about nothing and got the day wrong, so let's just <laughs> dive into it and just forget like that all just happened. So... If you know me, you know that I love Paris. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. I have many interests, as we all do, but I love clothing and shoes. I have many interests, as we (laughs) all do. (laughs) I've got none. I'm all over the map. I'm tomboy and like sports, and then I'm obsessed with clothes and shoes. But I really wanted to do something a little bit different this time. So we are going to talk about the wonderful wildlife of Miss Coco Chanel today. Yes. Okay, I had a hunch. I had a hunch you were going to do a fashion icon. I don't know why. Probably because we have a psychic connection. (laughs) The telepathy is real. But I was ready for it. Yes. This is awesome. I'm excited. I I, I don't... (sighs) I mostly just wear design pickle shirts. I'm not a high fashion person at all. But these folks are super creative yeah and i don't know anything about 
Coco. Oh, you're going to learn. Also, Kate, you've been to New York Fashion Week, so like you've dabbled in this world before. Yeah, I was on the runway, and no, I wasn't. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> Doing sachets down the runway. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Was, oh boy, oh it's also boy. our first female. I'd like to point out, so I'm excited about that because she's a total badass, and you'll see why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, that's been we've we've kind of like gone back and forth on that. You know, all of the people we've covered so far are men, and just like, oh, we need more representation. But if you think about the concept of the podcast, it's like, oh, that's that's why. Yeah, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> That's a very good way to say it. Uh, I'd also like to point out two things. One being that this is obviously just our research and our opinions. So if you have conflicting information or would like to correct us on anything, please let us know at podcast at designpickle.com. And also, because Coco Chanel was born a long, long time ago now, there's a lot of conflicting information about years and timelines. So Hmm. I'm going to say it based on what I found in the most amount of research, but there are a lot of varying reports about that. So we didn't feel like it really took away from the story and the chronological order. But if you, for whatever reason, feel compelled that we are very wrong (laughs) on a year, that is why. Feel free to let us know. Just wanted to point that out. So... I know you said you don't know much about her. She, obviously, from a legacy standpoint, I would like to talk about that just real quick before we dive into her life story because I don't think people realize how much she changed mm-hmm. women's fashion. And honestly, like so many things that she did really make sense today, but you don't put two and two together with her because it's such an iconic brand. But she basically was the person that got corsets and petticoats to go to the wayside and started introducing like pantsuits made pants fashionable for women shorter skirts that like showed the ankle which was (gasps) really scandalous at the time oh no that's naughty naughty ankle (laughs) but it's often said that she basically liberated women with the way that she designed clothes and like she was so ahead of her time with everything and you'll see why but she really did liberate the way that they thought about themselves and looked at themselves. And I think that's really important because regardless of how you feel about her after we talk about her story, she made an enormous impact in that way. Oh, I'm so excited. That I'm chills. I'm excited. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> and as you know, Jess, I hate wearing dresses or skirts. So now Coco Chanel is, is my idol. Yep. So we don't have to Thanks, do that Coco. anymore. <laughs> she's also often called the most famous designer in history at this point i think it goes without saying and someone quoted saying this about her her great strength was her ability to read the times and the moods that changed them and she usually did so before anyone else did so truly a visionary and Mm -hmm. again i keep saying this but you'll see why and it's often stated that the linking seas which is the logo will never go out of fashion like it's considered one of the most timeless fashion brands in history It's all because of her. So just wanted to kind of point that out ahead of her story because it is a little bit of a wild ride as we go on this journey. Do it! So her story started in 1883. She was born Gabrielle Chanel in the French countryside, but she was born in a poor house or hospice um, and was illegitimate. Her parents were not married at the time. And her birth name was actually Chanel with an S in it, so C-H-A-S-N-E-L. But due to a clerical error when she was born and they were filling out the certificate, no one was present. Her dad wasn't there and her mom was too sick to be there for the creation of the certificate. So they made a mistake and then she ended up keeping the way we know it today, 
Chanel as her surname and just never changed it to what it was supposed to be. <laughs> would, that, would that be pronounced differently, do you think? I don't really know. I mean, I, I tried to look it up, but I think there are different ways to view it. I don't, I'm not quite sure. But yeah, so fun little fact about her last name. It could have been completely different. She could have been Coco Chasnel instead of Chasnel. Chasnel. Yeah. I look at my Chasnel purse <laughs> that I have right now. Chasnel. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so she was born illegitimate. Her parents did marry a year after she was born in order to legitimize her, because obviously this was very frowned upon at the time in the 1800s. The only way you're a legitimate person. Yep. Your parents have to be married. Nope. (laughs) Unfortunately, when she was 12, her mom passed away from tuberculosis, which was very common at the time. Oh, no. And because her dad was a very poor street vendor, he basically peddled stuff on the streets in the French countryside. He couldn't take care of the kids anymore, so he sent her brothers to be farm laborers, and then he gave her and her two sisters up to an orphanage. So he was like, well, can't deal with kids anymore. Goodbye. Have fun at the orphanage. Oh. Yeah. Her and her sisters went to a Catholic nun-run orphanage where obviously it was very strict, and it's often thought that this was kind of where she became known for rebelling against any sort of structure or discipline, which was a theme we'll see throughout her story. (laughs) Add a girl, Um, yeah. And people also believe that she was rather hardened from this experience. I mean, you have a family, and then your dad's just like, I don't really care to be part of your life anymore. And I imagine living in a foster home with a bunch of strict nuns will harden you, so to speak. Yeah, I'd say so. But she did learn how to sew, iron, and do embroidery here from the nuns, so we can kind of see the beginning of the fashion side of things. It was also said that even though she was so young, she started to become known for her beauty. She was known as a very beautiful woman throughout her life, but even when she was young in the orphanage, she was kind of starting to be known for that. Her early life is also not well documented at all because of the class system and what happens if you're in a rural part of town, if you're illegitimate, all that stuff contributes to it. But she actually took advantage of this and liked this because she could recraft her story and basically tell whatever she wanted to tell about her early life. So she often lied about her age to avoid the stigma associated with being illegitimate, being an orphan, all that stuff, and no one could question her because it wasn't Hmm. well documented at all. That's kind of cool. Yeah, no one knows your history. You're like, I can be whoever I want. And she was bound and determined to make that a thing. So in 1901, she left Sisters of the Sacred Heart. She was 18 years old. She started working as a sales assistant, but she was also making money by singing in a bar. And this is rumored to be the first place she started to go by the name Coco. And it was because a song that she sang that had the name Coco in it. So people started just calling her Coco and associating Coco her Cabana? With it. <laughs> mm, I don't think so. I think it's Copacabana, but yes. <laughs> Same diff. <laughs> just cart things. Coco Cabana. Coco Cabana. Yep, that's where yep. her name came from. <laughs> I want to sing that song now, but anyways. (laughs) So she also said, but wait, I'm actually called Coco because my dad called me Coco. It's a term of endearment. Like, okay. Well, again, rewriting her her story, however she sees fit. Exactly. It was also said that she was really not that great of a singer, but she was just really pretty. So people were like, wow, this girl's fantastic, which whatever. Do you? Do you? So she started getting more and more exposure because of her beauty and because of the cafe that she worked in. She met many prominent people in the fashion industry just around 
France um, that came in and enjoyed her singing. So it is here that she met French textile heir Etienne Balsan. He was also a racehorse owner, and they quickly fell in love. She became a seamstress to them and moved to their castle upon an invitation from him. (laughs) Yep. He was also her romantic partner slash mistress and her financier. She was his mistress? Yes. Oh, so he was, he was like, married then, like, this... Oh, okay. She was like like, hired on to ah. be my seamstress. And then she was actually his mistress as well. Um, And he funded a lot of stuff for her over this time. So she started creating hats and actually started gaining attention from other women in the textile company because the hats were just really different and cool and trendy. And that's really where she started getting the fashion bug. And it's been said that fabric and horses were her two passions, which is why her and Balsan got along so well. And, you know, just had a nice little relationship, mistress or not. So it is what it is. So in 1910, she opened her first millinery establishment in Paris on Rue Cambon, which a milliner, if you don't know, is a hat maker. I did not know that. And I was going to ask you what that was. So I'm glad you I'm glad you Googled that (laughs) for us. There was not a uh, I'd never heard that term before. I don't know where we would have heard that term unless you're like knee deep in fashion. But unless you wore a lot of hats. Exactly. Which we so, do, but just yeah. not in the fashion sense. Figuratively. I, I like a good hat, though. I do. Oh, man. Those, like, oh, yeah. So I can't, yeah, the can't trendy pull them ones. off. But those, like, the horse racing hats and stuff mm. like that. Yes. Mm. Love a good hat. Yep. So, of course, this venture is funded by Balsan, and she got her lucky break when a famous actress, Gabrielle Dorziat, became a fan of her hats and then sparked a trend across France for people wearing them and making them cool. And it was through this time that she met a wealthy Englishman that shared her love of horses. His name was Boy Capel, and he was friends with Balsan. So she meets Boy. She's like, ooh, I kind of like this guy. And then they quickly fall in love. She's, she's done with Balsan, moves on to Boy. People say it's the only time Coco was ever actually in love. And their relationship advanced really quickly. They traveled everywhere together. She learned from him because he was from an aristocratic family. So when they traveled around, she learned from him about how the wealthy lived, talked, dressed, and was kind of able to pick up cues and tips on how to do that just by observing the people that she was surrounded by, which obviously in the long run proved to be very helpful for her. So in 1913, Boy gives her a boutique in Deauville, France, and this is when she really is like, you know what, I'm going to start making clothes. Like The hats are fun, but I really want to start revolutionizing clothes now. And she specifically wanted her style and her aesthetic to be modern and comfortable. So she was very over the restricting clothing, the corsets, the petticoats that I mentioned. So she started introducing casual knits and dresses, which obviously people were like, what is this? Like, it's so different from what was being designed at the time. She's like, I don't care. I like it. And this is how I'm going to do it. So 1914, World War One breaks out, but... It actually proved to be really good timing with her trends because simplification was obviously in a wartime very important to people. They're not going to put mm-hmm. on these elaborate clothes. All the men are at war, so the women were looking for simplified ways to dress themselves, and she happened to be there doing it already. 
She also became increasingly intrigued by menswear for women around this time, and she took inspiration from boys' wardrobe. So no one was wearing pants, but she allegedly designed pants after she was trying to ride a horse in a skirt. And she was like, you know what? Screw this. Like, this is so uncomfortable. Why do men get to wear pants and girls have to wear skirts? Like, it makes no sense logistically. So she literally took pants from a male rider at the time and fashioned them for herself and that was wow. like her first venture into women's pants i i was watching the good place the other day and there was it was just the one scene where uh, the main character goes why don't they make like skirts or no, no no pants but it's just both your legs go in one hole like why hasn't anyone thought of that yet they're like that that's a skirt she's like you don't get it. Never mind. <laughs> it's different. It's different. It's so you, perfect. Yeah, but, oh, man, trying to ride a horse with the skirt on. I love that the horse thing comes back into play. It's interesting that so much of her fashion was kind of because of this passion that she had and wanted to make yep. it more convenient. Obviously. Exactly. Which I feel like every good invention comes from, right? You're trying mm-hmm. to make your own life more convenient. So... This idea of pulling inspiration from menswear kind of became the basis for her couture house. And her guiding principles were her perfection of workmanship. Like she was very, very anal about stitching and making sure everything was perfectly stitched, cut, everything like that. The quality of materials was really important to her. The luxury of simplicity was something that she felt strongly about. And obviously, like I mentioned, in a wartime, this rang true with a lot of people. And her other principle was the need for fashionable women to be slim. So there's no body inclusivity going on at this time. Like, if you're not thin, she doesn't want to dress you. Okay. Okay, Coco. So, yeah. So in 1916, a French textile industrialist, easy for me to say, gives her jersey. Now, as you know, jersey is now a very popular fabric. You can get Mm -hmm. it in pretty much anything, but it was new at the time. Like, they weren't using that. But it inspired a lot of her silhouettes, and she was using a lot of neutrals, including her famous white and black. So that's when she really starts getting into, like, the white and black aesthetic that she's very well known for, and Chanel is still known for today. In 1919, Boy dies in a car accident, and this obviously rips Coco to shreds because he was her one true love. She's been quoted saying she lost everything with his death, and it was already a weird time anyways because it's post-World War One, and a lot of women are grieving because they lost mm-hmm. their, their sons, their husbands, their boyfriends, whatever, to the war. And so it's almost like a collective grieving that women of the time are going through in France. So she was aware of this. She was going through her own grief. And this is where the idea for the little black dress came from. <gasps> No way! Yes. So she basically recognized that women needed to mourn, but she thought it could be done in a more fashionable way than it had been. And she also thought that if she could pull inspiration from menswear, the nun days, the maids that she had been around, she could make it into something that actually was fashionable and pretty versus like, oh, I have to throw on this black dress to go to a funeral type thing. She was quoted saying, I imposed black. It's still going strong today for black wipes out everything else around. So she felt very strongly about this. Uh, Quick sidebar. She also, this is obviously starting to see how much of a trendsetter she was, but she also really enjoyed sunbathing. And she's actually the one that made tan skin more popular because before it was like you had to be 
pasty white and can't be tanned but she was seen returning from a mediterranean cruise extremely tan and then they like caught photographs of her and then it became popular to be tan and she actually capitalized on this by starting a line of tanning lotions for women (laughs) no way so we can credit her i I still i can't really i can't get over the fact that she came from nothing and so quickly like joined this this very glamorous lifestyle with yeah going to the mediterranean and riding horses Mm -hmm. and stuff like that like that's pretty fascinating but no secret that men had a big part of that for her tanning yeah wow now tan skin literally became a symbol of wealth and beauty from coco chanel and like we still value tan skin skin now so it's crazy i would have assumed it was like prior to that but no that makes that makes sense around that time yeah wild and she was wow what an icon i mean that's kind of one of those things too where it's like it's good and bad because now it's like another unachievable body thing exactly she's already (laughs) yelling at people to be skinny or else she won't dress them and now she's like no you have to be tan but but at least we have pantsuits exactly so i mentioned coco and men and how a lot of her life i would say escalated and she moved more quickly on than she maybe would have otherwise because she had wealthy men surrounding her just a few quick sidebars about her relationships. She dated the Grand Duke of Russia at one point. She also <laughs> dated Pablo Picasso. Oh, I knew that one, yeah. There was a quote saying, Picasso was always quick to demand sexual and emotional subservience from his women, and Gabrielle, Coco, being in many ways just as intense and formidable a character as he was, this affair could have only been a brief one. So basically, uh, had they stayed together, they would have just, like, destroyed each other in the long run. I mean, that's just a recipe for dis- disaster to, like, wildly creative, passionate people who are... Ooh. I'm looking at photos of her right now, and, like, my word, she is stunning. Yeah, she's, without a she's doubt. pretty stunning. Uh, the Duke of Westminster also she met through boy and she met Winston Churchill through him and became good friends with Winston Churchill because of the Duke. And actually the Duke proposed to her and she said, no, she's probably the only girl in the world to turn down the chance to be a duchess because she said, <sighs> there are a lot of duchesses, but there's only one Coco Chanel girl. Wow. Yeah. I wish I had an ounce of that confidence right there. (laughs) Uh, Quick note about Winston Churchill. He respected her a lot, and he once said in a letter home that the famous Coco Chanel turned up, and I took great fancy to her, a most capable and agreeable woman. She hunted vigorously all day, motored to Paris after dinner, and today is engaged in passing and improving dresses on endless streams of mannequins. She does it all with her own fingers, pinning, cutting, looping. Some have to be altered ten times. I just thought that was kind of a cool note about her creativity. Like, she's very much a perfectionist when it comes to her clothing. And we've seen that time and time again with the, with the folks that we cover where it's just it, everything has to be absolutely perfect. There are so many creative people out there making awesome things all the time. That's great. But one thing about being a creative person is it's hard to tell when your work is complete. Like, I feel like you're yep. always trying to get like it, it'll never end. The painting is never finished. Correct. But those little tiny details have to be absolutely perfect. So true. 
So by this time, it's the 1920s, and she's really starting to cement her status as a fashion leader. In 1920, she opens her first boutique in Paris, so she purchased an apartment, and it actually still houses the ground floor shop and Haute Couture shop in the attic, so it still exists today in Paris, which is pretty cool. Have you been there? I really wanted to go when I was in Paris, but we didn't have time, so next time I go, I'm for sure going to go. Let's go. Let's do it. But this purchasing of the apartment was a pivotal moment for her, and it kind of signaled she was known always to want more. And like I think, again, we see that with a lot of creatives, but she had a bunch of success, but she buys the apartment, and she's like, okay, now I'm like, I need to do more because I'm getting a little restless. Mm -hmm. So this desire for more was the catalyst of what we now know as one of the most famous perfumes in the world, which is (gasps) Chanel Number 5. Do you know mm-hmm. what Chanel number five smells like? I do. Yep. Uh, well, actually, can you describe the scent to us <laughs> now? I can. It's jasmine, rose, sandalwood, and vanilla. Oh. Yeah. So mm. my grandma has always worn it, and she, for a while there, she sent me little bottles of Chanel number five, because she was like, I want you to think of me when you wear it. So I've actually worn it for a long time, because my grandma wears it. Fun fact. So cool. Yeah. So there's actually, not surprisingly, there's a really fun story about how the scent actually came to be. So she started working with a perfumer, which I'm sure there's a lovelier way to say that in French, but I don't (laughs) want to botch it. (laughs) His name was Ernest Beau, and he was kind of famed at the time, so she wanted to work with him to create it. Now, there are a lot of stories around why it became named Chanel No. 5, the scent, the lab mix, all of that stuff. So one rumor is that it was the fifth sample that Bo made her, and she picked it. Another rumor is that a fortune teller told her five was her lucky number, so she wanted that to be... less sense, but (laughs) okay, I'm still following. Um, And then, actually, her biography talks about how the number five was a very prominent number for her, even starting back in her orphanage days, and it essentially is deemed as signifying the pure embodiment of a thing, its spirit, and its mystic meaning. So apparently the paths that led her to the cathedral for daily prayers at the orphanage were laid out in circular patterns, repeating the number five. So like a, like a pentagram. Is she, I guess, (laughs) no, I guess, uh, she also apparently (laughs) allegedly told her master perfumer, Ernest Bow, I present my dress collections on the 5th of May, the fifth month of the year. And so we will let this sample number five, keep the name it has already. It will bring good luck. So, so I, sounds so silly, but it, it kind of reminds me of Taylor Swift mm-hmm. and her obsession with the number 13 and putting it in all these like hidden messages and yep. stuff like that. The Easter eggs. Maybe that was her deal. Yeah. I, I like Occam's razor. I just assumed that, oh, well, it's obviously the fifth sample. So that makes yeah. sense. But interesting because that there is a deeper meaning for her whatever that means and we'll never know but it's a cool story regardless and you can believe whatever you'd like to believe so i mentioned already but jasmine rose sandalwood and vanilla are the main components of the scent but this also might have been the result of a lab mistake so i don't think it was ever intended to have rose in it but for whatever reason it ended up and then it became the signature scent it also had a high amount of aldehyde in it which is a synthetic component but it made the scent actually like sparkle. So if you put it on, it's like a little shimmery. Again, a mistake. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So it literally sparkled. Yeah. Is that why you're always glowing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. I need some number five in my life. 
<laughs> Chanel, please send us some number five. Thank you so much. Please. <laughs> Anyways, so after the perfume, they were happy with it. They were ready to distribute it. She was negotiating to get it into department stores, and she was told she would only get 10% of the profits. Her name is on it, but she was told you'll only get 10%. So due to you know her fiery personality, this was not good enough for her. So she entered a lawsuit to try to get more. The businessman and the business family that was selling the perfume and managing it for her were the Wertheimers. And he agreed to produce this originally with the stipulation that he was getting 70%. So, yeah, she was getting 10. Her name's on it. She created it with Bo, the perfumer, and he's getting 70% as just the businessman that was like, I'll help you take it to the department stores. So basically, she takes him to court for decades, and he eventually had to hire a lawyer to exclusively deal with Coco, because she just wouldn't give up. She was like, I need more. This is ridiculous. (laughs) So Tenacious woman. Tenacious woman, indeed. But Chanel Number 5, obviously, to this day, is still considered one of the best perfumes ever conceived, even though perfume at the time was considered inappropriate and provocative for people to use. Whoa. So yeah. first we're showing the ankles and now yeah. we're smelling good and sparkling. <laughs> yeah. That is we, oof. that is very taboo. Very taboo. It's kind of implied, but she also was the very first designer to actually have her own signature scent associated with her brand. And now obviously we see celebrities and every fashion house in the world has a perfume. Every fashion house. That alone is is fascinating that she was the first one because that's like standard protocol now yep if you are in fashion or you're just like a public figure yeah 100 percent. oh yep she really revolutionized everything in fashion yep crazy so kate yes jess we talk a lot on the podcast about how people creative specifically may or may not be the worst yeah right we, we've heard a lot who actually are the worst but you know who isn't the worst? Who's that? Design Pickles friendly and reliable designers. Oh, wait, do they make pickles or Yes. What's going on here? It's actually pickle manufacturing. No. Kate, it's flat rate unlimited graphic design and custom illustration custom illustration services. Ooh, I love custom uh <laughs> Yeah, Design Fickle is actually one of the Inc. 5,000 fastest growing companies in America. We've won a ton of awards for our unlimited creative services and, and design. It's so awesome. It's so helpful if you are a podcaster or a content creator in general, because you sign up, we match you with one of our professional designers, and you work with them. And not being passed around to different freelancers, which is really, really cool for brand consistency. Yeah, it is. And if you're a listener of this podcast, you get a special discount. If you use the code WORST at checkout, you get $100 off your first month for any plan. Ooh, any plan. $100 off any plan. That's We have our essentials plan for just your basic design needs. There's pro if you need more advanced work with same-day delivery or custom illustrations too, where you can submit unlimited requests for 100% original artwork. off. That is a sweet, sweet dill, if I would say myself. So around this time is also when we see the first appearance of the very famous interlocking C's that are now known as the Chanel logo. Uh, (laughs) She actually designed this logo herself for the perfume, and the logo hasn't changed since that original design. 
She literally does it all. Yeah. Hats, dresses, pantsuits. Perfumes. Fragrance. Yep. Logo designer. Logo design. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what? Wow. Yeah. Okay. There are many theories on the inspiration of where she came up with the interlocking seas. Many think it was inspired by a royal insignia that she saw on a visit to a royal residence. Quick note on that. Even though she was inspired by royalty, and you can see that in a lot of her themes of her clothing and jewelry and whatnot, she refused to dress anyone royal. She said, these princesses never pay their bills. Why should I give them something for nothing? No one ever gave me anything. She's a sauce pie. Yeah. She's like, uh-uh, she's, like she's got something kind of against the royal family with all of these comments. Which is kind there. of ironic considering all the wealthy men she dated and benefited from, if you think about it. Like, it's kind of a weird disdain for rich people. Yeah. But maybe that's why she has to stay like she knows what they're like. I don't I don't know. I'm putting words in Coco's mouth right now. Sorry, Coco, but we have to theorize about it. Speaking of theories, one other theory about the interlocking seas is that it was her way of honoring Boy Capel. So her last name with his last name. And it was a way to keep his memory alive forever. Again, we don't know. So only Coco knows the answer to that. She was very hush hush about the actual reason. But Something cool to think about when you see the Chanel logo now. That she might yeah. have been honoring her, the love of her life. So, in 1926, even though it was a few years prior that she came up with the idea of the little black dress, Vogue has taken notice of this and coined the term little black dress. They wrote about it and compared it to the Ford Model T in terms of how universal they were predicting it would be and said it was the frock mm-hmm. that all the world will wear. And obviously, they were right. Not wrong. They were right. Yeah. Um, During this time, Coco was also having frequent spars with Vogue about how many pages she got versus other designers. She really just wanted it to be all Chanel all the time in Vogue. And she often sparked some controversy with stunts like this because she was known to be not so nice to editors. She routinely criticized them. In fact, she also told one that she had the face of a monkey and a mouth of a sewer. Oh, yikes. That's not A little mean. A little bit of a mean girl. Uh, That's harsh. Not yeah. yeah, Maybe not super necessary for that poor editor, but maybe she deserved it. I don't know. (laughs) So (laughs) the 1930s roll around, and she, again, in true Coco fashion, she is doing all the things. She is getting attention from Vogue, but she wants to shift her attention yet again to accessories. (sighs) Yep. So can't be doing the same thing for too long. Time. God forbid. Create more. Yet another theme that I think we've seen across Mm -hmm. all the things is, oh. What else can I make? I want to do movies now. (laughs) I want to make a podcast. (laughs) Us. (laughs) The the Coco Chanel starts a podcast in 1942. (laughs) She was the first of her time. Anyways, so around the 1930s, she enlists the help of two aristocrats to help her start an atelier dedicated to jewelry. And at this atelier, models reportedly rushed to put makeup on whenever she was due to arrive because she hated makeupless faces, like hated it, which she would hate me <laughs> so much. Well, uh, <laughs> it's such a weird contradiction, all these things like uh, I don't want to wear dresses, I don't want to wear constraining corsets and whatnot, but also if you're not stick thin and you're not wearing makeup, I don't like you. But also, I want to do, I want to ride horses and pull inspiration from menswear. Like, it, it's all over the place. I mean, I will never ride a horse unless I have a full face on. So, (laughs) that's my rule. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. So a little bit, a little bit to say that I think and have that reputation, especially with models. But she actually was known to keep blush at her bedside too. She just refused to be seen, even by a man that she was intimate with, without blush on. So like some. Deep insecurities, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say there. There's some deep-rooted issues there that are she's probably projecting on other people. Yeah, but very insecure. Yeah, bummer. But she wanted her accessories, so she starts this atelier. She wanted them to balance the simplicity of her other garments. So yet another sh- thing that she basically invented was costume jewelry. So she would pull mm. different pieces, and some would be cheaper, some would be more expensive, and then combine them so that you could really spice Layering up. all your yep. necklaces with the pearls. And, exactly. Yeah. Yep, mm-hmm. that was her thing. And it, it makes sense because her clothes were pretty simple for the time, so yeah. she wanted to spice What else are you going to wear bit. with a little black dress? You're going to wear exactly. costume jewelry. Exactly. So this is also the time that she starts living permanently in the Hotel Ritz. And she ended up living there for 30 years. So she literally just lived in the hotel. And every day when she would go to the atelier or would leave the hotel, the porter would call an employee and they would spray Chanel number five on the staircase before she returned back. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. I mean, there are rumors about she requested this. There are rumors that they just did it. But I wouldn't That's be surprised honestly my dream <laughs> to, to live in a Ritz. Like, I, yeah. I, you know, I love hotels. I love, yep. ni- like, nice hotels. I'm very much a brat about that. Oh, to just live yeah. glamorously in the Ritz. Like, you're just, so prominent at that point that they're literally spraying your own perfume when you arrive. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're just sparkling everywhere. They just spritz, like, uh, Febreze when I walk out. <laughs> It's the Kate Rooney special. (laughs) Anyways, in 1939, she has to close her fashion house due to the World War II outbreak. Now, Mm. this is when things start getting a little bit hairy with our friend Coco. So, as you may or may not have heard, Coco was rumored to have some Nazi ties. She dated House Gunther von Dinklage, who was a German intelligence officer and allegedly, not confirmed, not denied, one of Hitler's right-hand men. I'm sorry, can you repeat his name one more time? House Gunther von Dinklage. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So, yeah. So there has obviously been a lot of speculation about this over the years because... Yep. And in 2011, journalist Hal Vaughn revealed Coco was involved enough with the Nazis that she was referred to with a specific agent code, as well as a code name, which was Westminster. The Washington Post also said there were legions of women of courage and daring Jew throughout Europe working hard to outwit the Nazis. Chanel was not among them. Ooh, it's pretty telling. Again, lots of speculation. Uh, where there's smoke, doesn't there's entirely, fire. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't entirely surprise me, though, given her predilection towards, like, being the quote-unquote ideal woman or figure. Yeah. Ugh. And because, obviously, Germany was really not well-received during World War II. You know, not not great. Wait, what? Yeah, really weird. <laughs> Just kidding. Fun facts. Um, it was considered treason at the time to have any sort of association with them. And while she was never prosecuted or charged with anything, she did exile herself to Switzerland to just avoid any, you know, further scrutiny about it. Yeah. 
um, or connections, I guess. And this is still something that gets brought up today. The claims are constantly disputed by the company as it stands. And their go-to statement is that she had many close Jewish friends both before and after the war. So, like, there's no way that she would side with the Nazis. But we will all make our own opinions about that. Now, this is where, you know, that whole lawsuit I mentioned with the perfume, this is where it comes back because she sees this opportunity of war and heartbreak for many as a way to try to leverage her Nazi connections to win her perfume business case because the Wertheimer family, not surprisingly, was Jewish. Now, the Wertheimers were no dummies. They saw this coming from a mile away that she was going to try to pull some stunt like this. And they ended up beating her to it and transferred ownership to their Christian friends until after the war was over so that she couldn't do anything to acquire the company. Whoa. Yeah. But because everything was just kind of up in flames in the world and with all the different ethnicities and races at that time, they all feared a PR nightmare. And because of her Nazi ties, they were like, well, we're screwed either way. So they renegotiated the deal with her, and that's what actually made her extremely rich because her perfume is obviously selling really well still, and she got a much larger percentage. I'm uncertain of the actual number, but they were willing to renegotiate with her even though she tried to do them dirty. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just easier that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're like, we're paying wow. one lawyer to manage her. Like, maybe it's time we just cut our losses yeah <laughs> move on uh random fun fact also at this time she was arrested for wearing pants in france during the war what yeah it, it's illegal at this time still yeah not illegal but like they literally arrested her and it's like there wasn't a ton of information on it but i read it so many times like what how is this what <laughs> so conflicted right now because i'm very upset with her uh anti-semitic ties but also uh, what what a badass to be like yeah i'm wearing pants i designed these they look awesome take me away boys (laughs) i don't give up so okay So she exiles herself in Switzerland. She takes a break from fashion. But in 1954, she returns to fashion in Paris because she said she was dying of boredom in Switzerland. (laughs) (laughs) Are we surprised? We are not. Nope. (laughs) But a lot of people doubted her return. They were like, there's no way you can make a comeback like this. She was in true fashion, determined to prove them wrong. Now... Another Wertheimer appearance, they funded this return to fashion, and they refused to comment on any of this or Coco, but they still quietly own the brand Chanel today. The Wertheimer family does. Really? Yes. And everything's just, like, licensed out? Interesting. Okay. Yep. But 1954, upon her return, is when she introduced her highly copied suit designs. So, as you can probably think of, Kate, it's a collarless suit, kind of cardigan, military-style jacket, and an elegant slim-fitted skirt that goes with it. The buttons oftentimes look like jewelry instead of just regular buttons. And each suit, I didn't know this, because I weirdly don't own a Chanel suit, but each (laughs) suit features a lion on the bottom, so not like in the actual stitching, but in the lining. And she featured lines in a ton of places on Chanel pieces, even if it was really subtle. And people think that this is because she was a Leo and she was kind of into astrology. But Many of the traits Leos are known for 
Coco identifies with. So creativity, confidence, leadership, loving expensive things, those are all traits known to be associated with Leos. So I just thought Mm -hmm. that was an interesting thing that it obviously meant a lot to her to have that lion symbol, but she also was like definitely in line with their traits. Like definitely uh, identified with that. She really does seem pretty um, superstitious Mm -hmm. given all of this. Yep. Um, I didn't know that about the lions. I, I mean, I too do not own a Chanel suit. Weird. Uh, but I didn't know that there were there were lions in her mm-hmm. designs. Yep. But obviously, this suit became very popular. Jackie O was one of the earliest fans of the suit, and the infamous mm. pink suit from the day JFK was assassinated is a Chanel suit. Whoa. Yeah. I was just listening to a podcast about that. I mean, about the assassination of JFK and just, oh, so awful for Jackie. Yeah, but. pretty, pretty bad. This is also a time that she introduced bell bottoms. Now, this is 1950s. Bell bottoms did not become widely popular until the 1970s. So I was like, holy crap, like yet another thing that I had no idea she was responsible for. Were they even a thing prior to this? Nope. She just came up with them. So bell bottoms. Remember when bell bottoms were a thing when we were growing up? Like I wear bell bottoms oh, all the time. Yeah, me too. Straight leg sparkly, wasn't even a thing. Sparkly belts. Yes, <laughs> limited to for life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, obviously, Coco at this time she was older. She'd been around the block. She didn't really care what people thought of her at this point so she was not afraid to comment on other designers and at this point she had a very bitter reputation and was known to be very opinionated so uh, at this point i mean yeah. she <laughs> sounds like she's been like that her whole life yeah um so she accuses christian dior of quote dressing women like armchairs at this time now obviously Ooh, christian dior is very very popular now so okay she also admired Cristobal Balenciaga's designs, but, quote, questioned his ability to cut. Okay. <laughs> and then um, about Yves Saint Laurent, she said, Saint Laurent has excellent taste. The more he copies me, the better taste he displays. She is savage. <laughs> yeah. She just Whoa. doesn't give a, She just really goes for it. So <laughs> we can probably speculate that a lot of that has to do with her upbringing and being an orphan and just having to be tough in every situation. But yeah, who's to say, um, but this time is also around the time that she finds fame in America. So prior, she was obviously very popular in France and in Europe, but this is really when her fashion and her style starts transcending into Hollywood and, um, making its way over there. So Marilyn Monroe famously said in an interview when, she goes to bed that all she wears is just a few drops of Chanel number no. five. And this gave the perfume a huge boost because obviously Marilyn was such an icon. So glam. That is so, so glam. glam. Yep. Uh, in 1955, she introduces the shoulder bag and this is her most famous bag. And it's one of the most copied bags in the world still today. Unlike other creatives, it did not bother her that people copied her. She said, being plagiarized is the greatest compliment one can receive. It only happens to adults. <laughs> okay. Children, <laughs> don't copy this. <laughs> I, was, I mean, I agree with everything in that statement, except for the last couple of words. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know why adults yeah, have I anything mean, to uh, do What's the phrase? Something, something is the greatest form of flattery. Imitation. Imitation is the greatest. Yep. 
imitation yeah. is the greatest form of flattery. Did she, did she coin that phrase too? It kind of sounds kind of like sounds it. like she could have, but only for adults. Yeah, <laughs> children, look away, avert your eyes. <laughs> but she actually, again, not surprising, and another revolutionary thing for women. Before the shoulder bag came out, it was only acceptable to hold your purse by your hand. But because of the gold chain that she put on her shoulder bags, it became glamorous and fashionable for women to wear their bags on their shoulders. So she totally freed up our hands by making that a thing. Uh, I mean, give us a break here. Women can't even get pockets (laughs) in our clothes. Let us not have to hold something else. I hate, I've never understood like clutches. I've never understood the concept of that. I'm like, why would I carry something? No. To carry more things. I don't want to carry me, it. Give me a backpack. Give me a, a satchel. I don't care. Give me a fanny pack. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to carry more stuff. Agreed. So sh- we have heard a thing. Coco. Yep. Thank you, Coco. By 1962, her hat was known to be her signature accessory. So we're bringing it full circle with the hats coming back. In fact, which is it a specific hat? I can about? show you a photo and we'll probably post yes. a photo on Instagram so everyone can see it. But. Her photographer, Douglas Kirkland, spent three weeks with her documenting her for a piece because obviously she's hugely influential at this point. And he did not see her remove this hat one time after spending three weeks with her, which I just thought was a fun little anecdote. But I mean, also, she has like blush on her bedside. She's probably very careful about how she is ever seen or perceived publicly or just in front of other people ever. Exactly. So, you know, she's still doing fashion at this time. In 1971, she's working on her collection that is set to debut in the spring fashion shows. But she unfortunately passes away peacefully at the Ritz. Her last words were, you see, this is how you die to her maid. And that was how it happened. She knew that it was happening. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's. Yeah. That's that's usually how it happens. And in true Chanel fashion, she designed her own headstone. And unsurprisingly, it featured a lion, which was obviously a big motif. And she was buried in her favorite (gasps) Chanel suit. Wow. Isn't that pretty? That's very pretty with the overlapping C logo. Yep. The lions. Wow. How very Chanel of her. And do we expect anything less? No. How very put what together. A fascinating life this woman had. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's no surprise. I mean, we've talked about it throughout, but her influence on fashion in general, on other designers, like it's the oldest active couture house still to this day. The brand is worth over $8 billion and it's on Forbes' list of most valuable brands. She is to credit for you know, designers doing their own perfumes, the Chanel suit, the quilted bag, costume jewelry, the little black dress, bell bottoms, we can go on and on and on. In 1983, Karl Lagerfeld took over and he revamped Chanel yet again and made it appeal to a younger audience. So he used models like Cara Delevingne and people like that to kind of get the younger generation excited. It obviously worked and Chanel is just as relevant now as it was back in these days. There have been countless biographies, films, plays, etc. about her, including a Broadway show starring Katherine Hepburn, who played Chanel in it. Hmm. She was listed on Time's 100 Most Influential Women of the 20th Century list. And I just want to leave you with this quote before we decide if she's the worst. 
Someone said Chanel's shrewd understanding of women's fashion needs, her enterprising ambition, and the romantic aspects of her life, her rise from rags to riches, and her sensational love affairs continued to inspire. Mm. So now, Kate, wow. I leave yes, you with the question Is Coco Chanel the worst? No, that, that's going to be a no for me. I just very, um, as as are most of the people we cover, very problematic times. But wow, revolutionized fashion in ways that I had no idea. I mean, we all know the Coco Chanel name and brand and perfume yep. and everything, but everything. I'm, I'm wearing pants right now and I would be... <laughs> yeah. Very sad if I was not. Um, yeah. That was fascinating. Well done. Oh, well, thanks. I, Do you uh, own any any Chanel stuff? Other than besides the perfume, the perfume? No. no. I just remember in high school, I loved thrift shopping with friends, and we came across like a Chanel purse. It was the quilted uh, purse with the chain. I'm yes. sure it was a knockoff. It probably was, but we lost our minds and yeah. got it and like passed it around. Yeah. It like the sisterhood of the traveling fake chanel purse i think next time i go to paris i'm gonna visit the couture house and buy a bag from the couture house because i think that's the way to do it if you're gonna purchase something that expensive yeah <laughs> I, i'll just dream about that and hope that someday we'll be allowed to enter europe again <laughs> true um i think for me she's definitely not the worst but i think what fascinates me the most about her is that she came from absolutely nothing mm -hmm. and built this life and in fact our producer pointed this out he was like i can't think of anyone else that went from being an orphan to literally the very top of society like her it quickly too it yeah, sounds like which is quite a feat and i think her creativity had a lot to do with that because she was such a oh visionary and was just always pumping out new work and coming up with new things and you know, there's obviously a lot of controversy about her and other designers and how she viewed them. And I'm sure she was inspired by other designers as well. It wasn't mm -hmm. just all her. But the reality is she's the one that coined all of these things. So, yeah, it seems like a, a lot of defense mechanisms going on, probably from her upbringing. Uh, but yeah. fascinating that she she wouldn't stop working, like yep. always moving on to the next thing. And every well, probably not everything. I'm sure we just didn't hear about the things she made that flopped but everything became like iconic yep. today and i feel like she's just kind of like a unicorn in a sense where she's stunningly beautiful gorgeous talented smart savvy tenacious, just yep. yeah yeah wow a rare breed for sure and it's Definitely. hard to say i mean yeah not a big fan of her nazi ties not a big fan of how mm. she treated other people but I think, like you said, a lot of that probably stems from being abandoned as a kid. And, you know, she always knew that she was the only one that would look out for herself. She never mm -hmm. married. She, while she had all those affairs, she never was reliant on another man financially from a marriage perspective. And she's been quoted saying so many different things about money and being self-made and all that stuff and took a lot of pride in that. So, yeah. Get it, girl. Nice to know. Wow. Well done. If if anyone has anything else to add about the story, please let us know at podcastdesignpickle.com. We want to hear from yeah. you. Yeah. Or if you want to tell us about your favorite Chanel piece, you're welcome to do so. Mm, yes. We'd love tell to us hear. what perfume you wear. <laughs> perfume. <laughs> perfume. Tell, tell us, us what it, it do toilet you wear. Yes. Or as my grandma well, calls it, toilet water. 
toilet water. <laughs> That's what my dog wears. That was awesome. Well done. Uh, we will be back next week. In the meantime, please give us a review, rating, follow. Uh, go follow us at Design Pickle on Instagram and all that stuff. But also we have uh, Creatives Are the Worst Instagram account too. So if you want to see some cool like design stuff, follow Design Pickle. If you just want to see all the stuff we post about the show, at Creatives Are the Worst. Yeah. We'll be back next week to figure out maybe who actually is the worst. Maybe. Yeah, and hopefully hopefully by then I'll know what date it is. Unlikely. <laughs> yeah. okay. Bye. Well, bye. Thanks for listening to Creatives Are the Worst. If you like what you're hearing, or if you think that we're the worst, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We'd love to hear from you. You can also contact us directly at podcasts at designpickle.com. And a big thanks to Design Pickle for sponsoring the show. Join us next week as we once again try to answer the question, are creatives the worst? 